Yeah, it's been an opportunity to either put theology into practice or to throw it all away, which is, I think, all we can really do in times of deep sorrow and deep loss is to say either these things have never been true or they're true right now. And I'm either going to choose to believe them in this moment or I'm just going to throw it all away and say, I didn't sign up for this. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. And just a heads up that for the content on this show, we do advise listener discretion as we will be talking about a little bit of sensitive material later on. Joining me, we have one of the world's most sought-after Christian bloggers. He's a pioneer in the blogosphere, also a talented author and a sought-after speaker. Tim Challies, thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Tim. You have a, an incredible platform that is online primarily and a space that a lot of Christians have maybe been a little bit late to the party to get to. I just want to go back in time for a moment. How did you come to get into blogging in the first place? Yeah, you got to go back to, I guess, the turn of the millennium when blogs were just kind of coming onto the scene. For me, it wasn't even a blog as much as a personal website, hence the chalies.com. I was in web design there and just decided to start a site that I'd use as a bit of a place to play and try out some ideas and uh, ultimately then to start writing some articles and stuff that I would share with my family. My family all lives in the United States and uh, just started developing it for fun and over time started having other people read my material. I was writing about some issues then that, uh, lo and behold, people found interesting. This was back when the Passion of the Christ was coming out, back when uh, Purpose Driven Life was all the rage. I just chose to write about those things. Other people started reading. Yeah, it just sort of grew up around there, sort of inadvertently writing about what people were wondering about at that very same time. And what were you doing vocationally while you were doing this, like writing on the side? Yeah, I was just between uh, two vocations, which was heading from network administration into web design. And so starting a website and using it as a, a place just to play, try out new ideas, that was right in my wheelhouse. And it made a lot of sense in that way, just to, to start something, to play around there, to test out some of the new technologies, test out this new medium. And then eventually I started to hear this word blog and realized that my site kind of fit into that and uh, so started to call it a blog and started to develop it more specifically as a blog. Very cool. And I understand there was a bit of a fork in the road where you were doing some some writing, uh, but you were maybe not as consistent as you would have liked to be. And you kind of challenged yourself to this daily goal if you were going to uh, keep this thing going at all. Yeah. And, you know, as we go back to that era, we have to remember that at that time, blogs or web blogs were social media. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no YouTube. There was no TikTok. There was none of this. We weren't iMessaging, WhatsApping. None of this stuff was around yet. And so if we wanted to relate relationally through the internet, blogs were, were where it was at, either that or uh, MySpace or something along those lines. But this was social media. And so there's a lot of interactivity then between blogs, talking about ideas with other people and forming little communities. And along the way, I started writing, but was doing it very haphazardly and frustrating myself with my inability to keep it going. And I would realize a week had gone by or several weeks had gone by and I hadn't put anything new out. And so one day decided, you know what, I'm going to try and do this every day for a year. And if I can't do it every day for a year, I'm just going to give up because I don't want to be bad at it. I want to be good at it. And uh, that was back in, I think, the end of 2002 or 2003. After a year, I realized, yeah, I actually did write every day or at least posted something to the site every day and really enjoyed it. 
and so decided to keep that going. And I think it's been about 17 years now that there's been something new every day on the site. To make it clear, I take days off, I take weeks at a time off. Um, so I'm not sitting down and writing every single day, but something is being posted that's new and fresh every day. That's really interesting. And congratulations to you for being so persistent. And you mentioned that you really enjoyed this. You enjoyed upon looking back after a year that this was an outlet that you could see yourself doing going forward. What, what is it about the process of writing that strikes a chord with you? Writing is my meditation. It's my it's the way I think about things. So I don't really know what I think about something. I don't know what I believe about something until I write about it. And so for me, writing is the discipline of, of coming to understanding and hopefully then gaining wisdom. I've got a very poor memory. I'm not able to hold a lot of thoughts in my head at once, etc. And so getting it down, typing it out, that's really the, the way I come to convictions. And then I also record those convictions. So when I forget what I believe about something, I can just Google my own site, pop it into the search engine and remember what I believe about things, which is really helpful as well. It's sort of my, my convictions externalized in that way for when I just can't remember what I think about things. So I find writing tremendously beneficial, a real joy. And um, I think something I've grown at both in terms of skill, but also just enjoyment as time has gone on. Wow. And that's a gift, right? As Ecclesiastes points us to. Yeah. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I just love it. The comparison of other forms of media. I mean, you can certainly go back to a recording of audio or uh, video, but it it doesn't seem to have the, the the stock life. I think of writing. Would you would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, and writing has advantages. Skimmable, which is nice. It's more searchable, which is nice. It's very hard to search for keywords in a video, whereas in writing you can. And so it's very easy to go back to it, recover it. More so, I think, than video, audio, and so on. And so, you know, I'm, I'm all about podcasts. I believe there's a lot of value in podcasts, but they don't have the same long tail or long life, at least for now, that um, that that articles do, just because of their lack of searchability, the lack of keyword finding within them. Mm-hmm. Tim, some would would consider you to have one of the most uh, widely read Christian blogs in the world, and you mentioned that there's this. Uh, there has been historically this this growing uh, push towards understanding theology historically and, and what that means really in the 21st century. Would there be a, a particular article or a particular series of topics that, that you would attribute to for uh, how you've gotten to where you are with uh, being so widely read? Yeah, I think um, if you go back, the initial burst really was out of the book and the film I talked about before where... Um, there were a lot of people back around the turn of the millennium who are pretty, I think, just tired of church, growing uncomfortable with the big box nature of church. That was right at the peak of the church growth movement, and everything was about getting bigger, growing faster, growing larger, programs, programs, programs. And I think a lot of people are finding church very uh, impersonal or depersonalized. And um, they were realizing that in order to constantly grow churches, you had to diminish the theology, you had to diminish the convictions of the church in order to appeal to a wider audience and not offend people. And so I think a lot of people were, were searching then for where they could have strong convictions, still be evangelistic, still share the joy in the Lord, but also really ground themselves in strong convictions. So I think those those series of articles, then some I wrote about uh, Reformed theology or just you know traditional theology. And then along the way, articles I've written just about Christian living, matters that are important. I wrote one about sleepovers, why my family didn't allow my kids to do sleepovers. 
and got read millions of times just because it was interesting to people, urgent to people. Um, so some of those just giving a dad's perspective, family perspective on matters of Christian life, I think have resonated with people as well. Cause it might offend you or it might you know, be consistent with what you believe as well. But either way, hopefully it just gives you something to think about and you can either agree, disagree, take it, leave it, but uh, hopefully it gets you thinking and hopefully thinking biblically. Mm-hmm. And you really are a, a thinker. You've keyed in on theology a couple times already in our conversation. Not only are you a tremendous writer, you're a tremendous reader. How would you say the reading that you do to supplement your time in the Word has helped you grow both as a Christian and as someone that has a, a voice to others? So I can't write unless I read. Um, I've instructed my wife many times that when I complain about not having anything to say or having writer's block or just being despondent, just to ask me, well, have you been reading? Uh, you got to keep filling up in order to keep um, putting content out. And you just got to keep getting ideas in and reading how other people do it. You got to read good writers to help you become a better writer and so on. So I'm very dependent on as a writer on on the reading I do. I also decided to start reviewing books years ago and um, have reviewed hundreds and hundreds of books over the years and, and, and enjoy it on the whole. Lately though, over the last couple of years, I found my reading really going back in time to previous centuries and I've really enjoyed exploring, especially writing in the, in the 1800s and uh, some of the devotional writers from that era. So my reading habits have changed a fair bit from reading what's new and urgent and exciting in the Christian world to what's maybe old, traditional, maybe even forgotten, but really, um, really deeply grounded in scripture and, and truth. Well, that makes sense with the, the documentary series that you released not too long ago, too, with those interests. That's quite interesting. I, I mean, the volume that you read, I think to some might be a little bit intimidating. I've tried to track with some of your uh, reading plans over the years, and I would consider myself in the avid reader category, you know, around two books a month would be nice for me. But I, I've seen, you know, you, you've been very transparent with, with those on Chally's.com that you you're shooting for like two books a week most years. You're just a reader through and through. Do you have any tips for someone that would want to read more and get into that rhythm? Not necessarily variety, but just volume. There's no necessary benefit in reading more. For some people, we just push ourselves that way. The other thing is once you've read, let's say, eight Christian books on marriage, it's really easy to read the ninth Christian book on marriage because they're probably just going to repeat what's already been said. They're going to footnote the same people, etc. So the more you read in certain categories, the easier it gets. I don't want to say you can skim, but over time you'll just be looking for what's new or what's the same thing said better. So it's pretty hard to be impressed over time. The other thing is most of us forget most of what we read and we got to be okay with that. We're really weak and limited beings. There's the occasional person who's got a photographic memory and remembers it all, but most of us forget most of what we read and we just got to be okay with that and understand that books do something in us in the moment. So if we read a good book and all we come away with later is one idea or one little thing we've changed in our life, that that's well worth it. We got to be okay with that. If you can't remember the whole argument of the author, you can't remember all the details, that's all right. The book's probably still done something in you. Just like we can't remember most of the sermons we've ever heard, but that's not the same as saying the sermons haven't impacted us or changed us. We trust that over a long period of time, over a long process, change will come, even if we can't quite uh, do the math in our own heads of how it comes about. Temptations and weaknesses. Tim, you've written a lot on pornography. 
how did this become such a dire conviction for you to to share about? Mm-hmm. A lot of that just grew out of my uh, conversations with young men in the church, especially my own local church, maybe 10, 12 years ago, just interacting with young men, engaging with them. And really the, the shocking conclusion I came to many years ago was that there are a lot of young Christian men who are pursuing marriage so they could have somebody to act out porn on. Their motives in marriage were largely, or one of the major motives was, I've looked at all this porn, but I've never actually been able to act it out on anyone. And so now I need to find some some young lady, marry her, so I can put this all into practice. And that thought just really, really horrified me and made me want to engage with young men and try and uh, steer them away from this perverted sexuality into holy sexuality to be able to treat the, the women they would marry with real love and dignity rather than cruelty and indignity. So I think that was really where it got started. And at that time, I didn't quite realize how how deeply people were into pornography. This, you know, my generation was the first that grew up with you know, we could we could find it if we wanted, but it was hard to find. Internet connections were slow, etc. It was the generation after mine where parents just turned over their kids to the internet, said, go explore this medium, have fun with it. And they got absolutely immersed in porn. Um, and so they were the first generation, I think, where they, they almost had no chance. They were young men without self-control, many not believers yet, and they just fell into this thing. And so I felt, I mean, anger toward them because they're not absolved uh, for their their sin in in this, but also real pity for them that uh, many of them have developed these habits before they really even had a chance. And so I was eager to work with them and help people through that. And you've pointed to self-control being a real detriment to this generation that's growing up with technology. Could you elaborate on, on why this fruit of the spirit is something that you have such a conviction to play a role in, in, striving for what is pure and not pornography? Yeah, sure. Well, um, self-control is fruit of the Spirit. So when God indwells us, we should begin to see that work out, the qualities, the virtues, the values of God himself working themselves out in our lives. And God values self-control. He doesn't give us a body, doesn't give us this gift of sexuality so we can use it in just any way we please. He gives it to us in trust that we will use it in the way he has directed. And that means with self-control, not to just let this thing run rampant, but to direct it toward his purposes, which is love and procreation and, and unity with a spouse and so on. And so I really believe God is eager to and willing and able to indwell people and, and uh, turn their hearts toward him. And then they can use their, their bodies with self-control in a way that honors him. But the, the problem, of course, is that so many have not so many are not willing to do that. Self-control is opposed to the fruit of the flesh, if you will. We want to live a life without boundaries. We want to live a life without self-control on our own. And so it's a great, great battleground for many men, many women as well. Yeah, it really is. You are a very focused person. It's it's evident. You've written on productivity quite a bit as well. And I'm just curious, uh, what would you say has been a, a valuable productivity tool for you over the years? Something that you couldn't go without? Yeah, there's a few things I couldn't go without. So reminders, a reminders app on my phone is absolutely crucial to me. I just have to have an app that I can dump information into just very quickly, get notifications and everything else set up. And then a really good writing app. I find a lot of people depend upon something like Microsoft Word to do their writing, but there's apps developed specifically for writing. Word is sort of the the kitchen sink app. There's apps developed for writing that I find much, much better for just 
getting ideas out of my head and onto a computer. So those would probably be the tools I'm most dependent upon. And just generally Apple products, which I find there's a very developed writing and productivity environment for Apple that doesn't necessarily exist in the Microsoft world. Maybe they could come along as a, as a sponsor for your site. Maybe. I'm curious, again, about the reading. Do you have like a designated amount of time in a week that you're like, okay, these evenings, I'm going to be head deep in a book because that's how I like to unwind and I want to do this. No, but I have a reminder that flashes up on my phone every evening that's at 6.30 p.m. that says, read something good. That's my reminder not to spend the evening just watching Netflix. You know, I'm all about Netflix. It's fine to watch some shows. It's fine to relax. There's nothing immoral about watching good series. But I just need to remind myself that Netflix doesn't make me a better writer. It doesn't really help me in my vocation. Reading does. And so I try and spend a good amount of time most evenings reading something good that either gives me good information that I can work on or just is beautiful writing that helps me become a better writer. Has there been uh, any pleasant surprises in your reading, particularly of books that you've reviewed that be like, hey, you should you should read this. It's maybe not so prominent, but it's, it's a good read. Yeah, I've been, uh, this is a weird one, but I've been enjoying the sermons of DeWitt Talmadge, who was a prominent American preacher in the late 1800s. Man, could that guy preach. I, I don't usually read sermons, but his just really fire me up, and uh, I just love him. Any uh, particular text that he's been expounding with you or a theme in the Bible? Well, he was one of those preachers who would take a text and he wouldn't quite exposit it as much as he would use it as a launching pad for very good thoughts, even if they weren't directly connected. But he was a real preacher of the gospel. So he'd just be constantly calling people to turn to Christ and repentance and faith. So I found him just really, really good in that way, making me a better preacher, helping me know better how to reach people's souls and uh, just call them to, to Christ. This gig economy that we're in right now, I think you're a product of it in some ways. You've got your own website. You've got businesses that support you. Could you just uh, like let us into behind the, the curtain a little bit of to how you like finance yourself as far as, you know, the sponsorships and being able to do what you do? Yeah, I had the advantage of getting in very early into the blogs, into the blogosphere and gaining an audience while it was still relatively easy to do so as a generalist. So most people now who get into social media, get into blogs or something, they have to be specialists. They have to pick a, a niche area and focus on that. I was able to be a generalist, which helped my cause a lot, which means I could grow a, a larger audience than most have been able to. And, you know, I think most people would understand blogs plateaued some time ago and most are not seeing a ton of growth anymore. Most blogs now, at least the popular ones, are, you know, associated with big ministries or something with whole teams of writers. I got in early, which helped me kind of get to that point of viability. And so I survived through sponsorships, which is just companies or ministries um, paying for sponsorships through affiliate programs like Amazon or Westminster Books, things like that. And then just through patrons, people who are willing to say, yeah, I enjoy the content and I'm willing to uh, sponsor you at a small amount every month, but get enough people and that adds up to something. And then writing books. Um, you know, there's not, uh, not too many people can earn a living off writing Christian books, but it does as part of something else. It's helpful. And you still do, you're a lay elder at your church. So beyond just that responsibility that you take up to care for the flock, uh, do you think that also kind of just keeps you sort of a little bit more in touch with 
people that you're writing to because you're actually like seeing them to whatever extent we can during this pandemic too? When you're separated from real people in real lives, I think you can forget just how messy we all are. And uh, to realize some of the, the very earthy and difficult things people deal with in their lives. And so I think it makes me a more compassionate writer, a better writer, as I pastor people, uh, lead them through life, help them with uh, the things that are going on in their, in their world. I think it makes me a better, more compassionate writer. Mm. And all the experiences that you've had to endure. I mean, this, these past couple of years, it's not been easy for you. Uh, the, the loss that you, that you suffered in your family, I'm, I'm sure that that resonates with the audience and you're becoming even more uh, a resource to us all as you uh, relay to us how you've just continually pointed to Jesus. So thank you for doing that. It's certainly been a very, very difficult couple of years for the whole world enduring a pandemic. And then my family had the the added tragedy of my son uh, dying very suddenly and unexpectedly. And so we've been, as a family, enduring that. Yeah, it's been an opportunity to either put theology into practice or to throw it all away, which is, I think, all we can really do in times of, of deep sorrow and deep loss is to say either these things have never been true or they're true right now. And I'm either going to choose to believe them in this moment or I'm just going to throw it all away and say, I didn't sign up for this. And I don't think God's truth or God's promises are equal to the task of giving me comfort, giving me joy, giving me hope, even through a deep loss. And so uh, by God's grace, I think he's helped us all in, in my family to to trust him through this, to believe in him through this and to uh even through tears, even through grief and deep, deep pain, to be able to look to to him, to look to his character, to look to his goodness, and to look to the future he promises us, and to uh, to find joy. Would you say there's anything new that you've learned about that? Yeah, I, I've definitely learned that God is true to his every promise. Um, he promises he'll comfort us, and he will. And I think I've learned that that promise, more often than not, comes through his people. And so God promises he'll comfort us, he doesn't drop a warm blanket out of heaven for us. He sends people to us. And God promises he'll, he'll speak to us in our pain. And as often as not, he does that through people as well, through their words, through their prayers, and so on. And then also just to, I think it's made me realize like never before that God really has power. God can just take away the people we love. And that doesn't make him bad. That doesn't mean he's done anything wrong. It's just God exercising his his prerogative as the creator, the sustainer of all that is. God didn't tell us he was going to do this. God didn't ask us permission to take my son away. He didn't apologize, nor should he have. He's sovereign. He can do what he wills. And then I just have to believe that there's a good purpose behind it, that it all someday will make sense, even if right now it doesn't. Awesome. Tim Challies, it's been a privilege. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you. And if you want to find out anything more about Tim, including the books he's written, just head to challies.com. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. From the year 2000 to 2017, she upheld the law at the highest court in the land. She is the longest serving Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada and the only woman to ever hold the position. You are not going to want to miss my conversation with Beverly McLaughlin. We'll consider her legacy as a judge, her take on rights related to the pandemic, and even her Christian upbringing and the influence it's had on how she approaches law. Everybody is hardwired for justice. I used to say, you know, when people would be badly treated, when they would be treated unequally, 
Everyone has that sense. Things have gone wrong. This isn't the way the world should be. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. 